Well, this morning we finish up Luke 1 through 13. This will be our last sermon in these 13 verses as we've had a handful of them at this point. Again, as you're following other outlines, maybe more prudent than my own, we would have been through 13, 1 through 13 in one message. We're rounding out as we typically do, I think, somewhere near our fourth. But as we kind of consider this text, we slow down and receive exactly the picture of what we are to receive. This morning, I want us to consider three basic categories of life. That is simply as human beings, our own experience, each one of us here with these similar and shared concerns. Three basic categories of life where we desire to have total certainty. If I were to just throw them at you, you would probably be able to like, wind it down to where we probably arrived at these same three categories without me sharing them to you, are these basic bare-bone components of our lives as human beings. These we share. And I think, again, there was 40 days of temptation taking place here. We, the people of God, through the Word of God, have access to three of them. That also is instructional considering these three temptations are basic to life. In other words, we, each one of us, face these same temptations in their categories. And we desire in these three categories to have total certainty. Consider the first category that we looked at last week, where each of us, I would at least put forward, you can consider in your mind, that we desire to have total certainty in physical provisions. Each one of us, as we looked at our Lord, hungry after 40 days of going without food, and consider ourselves in light of that, and again, even the day right before, for the rest of the day before us, how each of us desires, as we consider our life lived, to have physical provisions met with total certainty. We desire to have certainty of our food, certainty of our clothing, certainty regarding housing, a roof over our heads. A certainty could we push even further into the provisional category, savings, financial security in the moment. Not many of us love to simply live with 100% risk in the category of finances. Rather, I think it's quite natural that each of us desires, if not a very aggressive level of certainty, total certainty would be ideal. Consider also even further looking beyond the savings of the moment or the cash flow in our time, but also retirement funding. We just simply desire in this physical provision, because think of the days when maybe we're not able to work and with our hands or we're not capable as physical individuals. How are we going to have funds then? So then we think today of retirement era and then the funds and we desire certainty. A second category that I think we all can connect on as we have access through these three temptations is power. We desire to have total certainty regarding power. Now, I would say in power, kind of a forward slash in the next word with it, or kind of synonymous, and I'm using them interchangeably, is control. We desire to have total certainty in the area of 
power or control. And, and I do note for you, as we consider that category a bit moving forward, it is a little relative as far as speaking to power and how each of us conceive of power. So that each of us, as we look within our lives, we may not consider ourselves and we may not look at one another and consider someone else or ourselves as being what we would kind of term power hungry. And I'd say, well, I can tell that person all they want is power. Well, I never really think of myself as all I want is power. So, so, but still, it, it, stick with me in this category to suggest that we still desire, each one of us in the human condition, do desire at a very fundamental level to be in control. We desire to have control, total certainty, be in control of our circumstances. Very few of us love to just drop out of nowhere and have chaos spring everywhere around us and thrive in uncertainty and chaos. I mean, all of us set up in some way to have control. And and even the use of chaos to maintain control is the way that some of us are wired. I feel at my best when things are in their worst, so I keep them unstable for me to be stable. A way that an individual works, but it's just another form of desiring control. Control over circumstances, ensuring certain outcomes, and that kind of ties into retirement funding or savings or food or clothing. These kind of things begin to blend and and, and kind of work together, ensuring certain outcomes. In other words, we'd rather have certainty and control than unknown and loose variables. Put it in one last kind of picture with the desire for power, or as I say, at a fundamental level, a desire for control is control over our relationships. Those that we spend our time with, those that we invest our time with, we desire to control them. This gets into the nastiness of manipulation, both emotionally, spiritually, manipulating. This issue that brings out temptation to us for control, the elimination of the unknown. We'd rather have in the physical provision, in the power or a sense over circumstances, total and absolute certainty. Third, the third kind of category to consider by way of introduction to this text this morning, where we desire as human beings, each of us, again, at different levels with different sets of wiring and different constitutions by birth, we still desire these in different ways, very deeply. And that is total certainty over protection. That is self-preservation. Here the desire in the category for control or total certainty over protection is the desire to eliminate risk. Just to eliminate it, to extinguish, extinguish the idea of risk. To self-protect in all of our dealings. We desire to protect ourselves emotionally, relationally, and physically. Now, all in all, we can overemphasize the need for protection in such a way that we resist any sense of vulnerability. 
This happens in the people of God, in the community of the church, oftentimes. Sometimes the criticism's fair and sometimes it isn't. But many of us do play it safe or, or keep it close to the chest in our relationships one with another. Because we want to be in control. We want to have certainty or sure footing, even if it means emotionally and relationally, spiritually. This cuts against vulnerability. It is these three basic categories of life that I think, again, cutting across the board in this room, each of us have in different ways or different manifestations or different levels based on DNA, based also on progress and sanctification, etc. But it's these three basic categories of life that are at the core this morning of Jesus' temptation experience that we have access to. It is these three basic categories of life that instruct us so clearly here in this text regarding our human condition. Now, if I could just for a small note on the side. As we look at the text here in a moment, considering these three basic categories of concern and temptation. Just to be clear, there is nothing inherently wrong with having a measure of stability in one's life. I'm not going to propose, and I don't think the text would in any way speak or instruct on the more unstable an individual is, the more they're living by faith. Those two things are not exactly one in the same. There's nothing inherently wrong with having a measure of stability in one's life. And in fact, we could speak of another category in Scripture of wise stewardship, living through faith or by faith, however we describe that. Certainly, as we considered last week, looking at the hunger of our Lord in the first beginning temptation, physical provisions, as we witnessed, are important. They are. If you don't eat, you will die. So, so, so again, it's not like, well, you know, they eat. We don't. We're God's people. That, that, that's not exactly how that functions. So we all see that physical provisions are important. A certain level of control or stability in one's relational life with others and those around them, both within their marriage, both and outside their marriage, within their community, within their church community, a certain level of stability in one's relational life, I think we'd all agree, is not a bad thing. And certainly, considering the last, each of us would see that God has placed deep within our hearts a desire that is good for self-preservation in the face of danger. That is a common goodness that each of us desire to self-protect at some level. We're not running out into the street in front of vehicles. We're not playing irresponsible with things that would bring about our death. And we teach the same to our children regularly, I trust. So we see that God has indeed given us this sense of desire for self-protection, the desire for some measure of stability and control within relationships and within community, and certainly there's nothing wrong with physical provisions, food, housing, etc. So if I could then, the temptation here in Luke 4, as we're kind of narrowing down our search to these temptations within the text of 4, 
The temptation here is not whether, one, we will pursue stability. So as as you're getting ready to read Luke 4, don't think this. It is either, one, within this text, here is what we, the people of God this morning, are confronted with. We will either pursue stability or we will live in chaos. That's not what's taking place here in this text, but rather... The temptation for Jesus here in Luke 4 and for each of us in this room as we learn of this text for our sake is not, again, if we will have stability or if we will live in chaos, but rather how will we pursue stability? How? So again, to bring it back to the condition of humanity, even within this room, the human condition, I'm not putting forward for any of us that we either live stable lives or Christian lives, as in unstable and chaotic. That's not what's set before us in this text. The question is, how do you, believer, how are you currently, this morning, can, you know, think of your own kind of applicational context of what you're facing. And let me ask you this question in that room, in that context. How are you pursuing stability in your life? How are you pursuing stability relationally with your wife, both within the home and outside the home in the community or at the church? How are you pursuing stability in these matters? I mean, life is turbulent. So so we know that all of these categories within which the human condition lives, life is turbulent. So we're, we're, and it's good to kind of level off. But the question is, how are we living in turbulence? How are we pursuing stability? This is the question of the text. If I could just push forward, and I'm going to describe the question a little bit more clearly as we move forward. I want to use, yet again, he just happens to be the man of the hour for two weeks now. So it's not all the the voices in the room, but it's a good voice in the room. And this is, once again, Calvin. I used Calvin last week. I want to draw your attention once more to him. He speaks so clearly on the issue of why the pursuit for stability. Because we're all pursuing it. And it's not inherently bad or wrong. But Calvin speaks of why the pursuit for stability, so innate to us, so inborn, so very natural, we would think, well, then why is it bad? Well, this is why. Calvin speaks of why the pursuit for stability needs to be carefully examined. Our desire for total certainty needs to be carefully examined. Why? Calvin begins to describe the need for examination regarding our pursuit for stability this way. Quote, there are many reasons why we must pass our lives under a continual cross. In other words, great levels of instability. There are many reasons why. We must pass our lives under a continual cross. This is how he goes on. As we are by nature 
too inclined to attribute everything to our flesh. We readily esteem our virtues above their due measure. So right there, he's warning us already. The reason for instability, why we must be in this condition, is because so far, consider, you are too inclined to attribute everything good to your flesh. You are naturally driven on in sin to consider your virtue well above its due measure. Calvin continues, hence... We are regularly lifted up into stupid and empty confidence in our own flesh. And relying on it, we are then insolently proud against God himself. As if we say to ourselves, by our own powers, we are sufficient And need not his grace. Why the instability? Because we naturally desire total control. And we desire to have stability at whatever the cost. Therefore, God's response of grace is to purposefully keep us sufficiently unstable. Lest we grow in pride, lest we turn to the work of our hands and serve at its feet, making for ourselves our own gods. So God, knowing the disposition of the heart, knowing the temptation and the weakness in sin, keeps us sufficiently and purposefully unstable. By this description of our desire, yet our inclinations to attribute to ourselves everything good, to take our virtues that are there and are gracious and esteem them above due measure, with the outcome being necessarily that we would have stupid and empty confidence in ourselves, so much so that we would be insolently proud against God himself, the question is advanced this way as we turn to Luke 4. Let me ask you this question as we pursue the text. Will we trust in ourselves... And as Calvin notes, thereby seek stability even apart from the will of God. If God's will is a measure of instability in our lives for our salvation, will we rise up, as Calvin says, insolently proud against him? And desire in our own powers, apart from the will of God, to thrust off his work and pursue stability as we see it, no matter the cost. Simply put, will we shun his way? Will we do everything to get out of the vice grip that he places us in by grace 
for our salvation? Will we simply turn and be wise in our own eyes? My life doesn't need this turbulence. Says who? Says me. This is the question of the text that we peer into Luke 4 and see. The other than remedy to this question, and I'll just read the whole thing in full so that we're all on board, and then we'll turn our eyes to Luke 4. I put before you again this once more before we go into the text. Will we trust in ourselves and thereby seek stability even apart from the will of God or ourselves unto God? And even there in the turbulence, be made strong in our weakness. So that we're not simply strong when turbulence ceases. But we are made strong by the strength that he provides in his very purposeful turbulence for our good. Or we say, I don't need that turbulence. I don't need that good. I need this, and I know it. But God has this for you. People speak into your life. The preached word comes at you forcefully. The Lord's table is provided for you. Singing and worship and giving and community to speak into these categories. And you say, I know this is the will of God for me, but I'm going this direction on my own because I know that each of us face regularly, if not every day, perhaps. Notice how we see this question of stability and certainty and control being presented to our Lord here in Luke 4 in the first satanic assault. Uh, Well, I say first, but we already covered hunger last week. I know you'd all desire another sermon on the hunger section, but I must, just for my sake, I must move forward. But we'll we'll go to the, the second, but of this time this morning, it is our first, if you make sense of that. The first consideration is the question here over control. So the first of the satanic assaults in the text that presents itself as a temptation to our Lord is a question of power or a question of control that each of us, peering through our Lord's work, find ourselves in this very temptation regularly. Look at Luke 4, and I'm going to read verse 5 through 7. Beginning in verse 5, And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And then he said to him, To you I will give all this authority and their glory. For it has been delivered to me, And I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. Now, I know there are some theological considerations here that we could kind of wrap our mind around. um, How exactly Satan is doing this, how he is showing him perhaps. I don't know how far to to handle the text in in this way. We don't really know. It's kind of just there, and it happened. Exactly how time was conceived of in a moment 
all of the eras of, of redemptive history, all of what we see now in the kingdom of man, all that we see in the future of which many of us will be dead long and gone, and, and perhaps if the Lord wills, it will just continue. So, so how this was all kind of wrapped into a moment of time for temptation unto Christ, that, look, I'm showing you the kingdom of man in a moment. I, I don't know exactly how that occurred, but that's not really the concern of the text. Yet also another note is to be important if we think, well, what, how, how, how is Satan even able to make this offer? We do need to remember severally in Scripture that it speaks of Satan as the God or ruler of this present age. John twelve thirty one, where the Lord is speaking of drawing all men unto himself when he is raised. He will draw all men unto himself. Speaking of his work on the cross as the community looks on. He also speaks of this in relationship to his cross work. John twelve thirty one. now is the judgment of this world. This is our Lord speaking, John twelve thirty one. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. So again, the labeling there of Satan as the ruler of this world, in a genuine sense, in a very real way, Satan is the ruler of this world. Further in Revelation, of which we had the pleasure of being able to go through a few years ago, you recall as the book of Revelation continues to show forth vision after vision after vision, consistently it presents the kingdoms of this earth presently. As it would be my argument, the book of Revelation is on the ground at work Right now, this very moment, the beginning of the book of Revelation with its breaking of the seals is beginning at the resurrection. And what we see in the book of Revelation is continuously happening through recapitulation, vision after vision after vision after vision of the same era between his resurrection and his return. And that consistent picture presents the kingdoms of this earth from resurrection to return as being animated by satanic force. I don't think we'd have to work very hard to be able to look at the turbulence of the earth and indeed see some of the torturous things that occur in the earth, some of the things that just break your heart that you hear about in media, to realize that many satanic forces are at work in the earth, destroying, maiming, killing, murdering, false prophet after false prophet, false gospel after false gospel, continue to destroy the earth. Scripture through the book of Revelation repeatedly joins with John that Satan is the ruler of this current age. He is the ruler of this earth. That which is at work upon it is animated by his force. So, in some real sense, as the best that I can put forward to you about this word in the text, in some very real sense, Satan was offering to Jesus. And this is important, is the, is the piece that I really want to build on. An immediate share in the ruling of the sin-fueled kingdom of man. He was offering our Lord, in a real sense, an immediate share in the ruling of the sin-fueled kingdom of man. He showed it 
everything that occurred. Maybe only as he showed in a moment of time or whatever exactly took place there. All of its beauties, the power of Rome. Maybe he did see as all of the kingdoms of man in a single moment. Maybe it did stretch all the way to the most powerful Western cultures today. Or of another era of total rule and total power. And in some real way offered to Christ that picture. And it came upon this condition. Deny the kingdom of God and receive the kingdom of man. Many of us might theologically fall out at this moment. And maybe it is that we ask this question, how, come on, how is this truly tempting to our Lord? You know, and I, I get that. I get that there's some measure of mystery there where we think like, okay, he is fully man. Yes, we're orthodox. He is fully man and fully God. Yes, we're Apostles' Creed. We recognize, yes, truly, that he was conceived of the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. The, the, yes, 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 yes. But then when we come to this text, sometimes we think, oh, but he was Jesus. He's divine. How, how is he really even tempted here? And, and it can be a bit, ah. Uh... So let me put forward perhaps something helpful. How is this truly, this moment, this, this, this share in a sin-fueled kingdom of man worth renouncing the kingdom of God? How is this truly tempting to our Lord? Well, I put forward this answer. It is tempting to our Lord as it appeals to the human desire. Again, he is fully man. As it appeals to the human desire for immediate gratification. Indeed, we look upon the kingdom. If, 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 if Satan says to him, denounce the kingdom of God and embrace the kingdom of man. We say, well, that's clearly a lesser glory. I mean, the kingdom of God or the kingdom of man? Yes, yes, sure. It is a lesser glory, but notice the text very carefully in verse 6. It is a glory nonetheless. To you, I will give all this authority and their glory. Verse 7, all of it. The authority, the glory, the majesty of all the earth will be yours. The temptation to our Lord is an immediate gratification. That is, a lesser glory will be yours, yet a glory nonetheless with the elimination of all future risk. If you want it, you can have it now. You see, Satan is offering our Lord, theologically speaking, and very practically here, he's offering our Lord a crown, a king's crown, without a cross. You can have all of this right now. You can be a realized king over all of these people without the Father's will, without the path that leads to a gory event, without the work of a substitution for these people. You can be a king right now. 
without a cross. You see, thinking of it as we peer through our Lord's temptation, in light of our own lives, how often are you and I tempted to invest in the momentary? Weighing out our options very carefully. How often in weakness we would rather invest in fool's gold. That which leads to an immediate provision. That which leads to an immediate sense of control. That which leads to immediate sense of self-preservation. Which comes with no risk. Which comes without exercising faith. Because we, in this wilderness temptation, in this era of a pilgrim's journey, in a parched and barren land, exiles, we often want crowns without the way of the cross. We want, maybe more simply stated, We want joy without obedience. But our Lord, standing in our place here in the wilderness, standing on our behalf in the covenant, representing all of his sheep, for which he would lay down his life. He provides in this very text his strength in the place of our weakness. Look in his response in verse 8. And Jesus answered him, It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God. And him only shall you serve. You see, Jesus' quotation of the law made clear that he desired the glory of God above all that this earth can provide. What is the chief end of your existence? Why were you created? To glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. This our Lord instructs in this very moment. He desired the glory of God above everything this world has to offer. Furthermore, we know, as he then himself knew, this glory of which he loved, this glory of which he would pursue, this glory which was greater to him than anything that all of the ages combined could provide, required of him a cross that he would embrace.
It wasn't naivety. It wasn't for a failure of full disclosure on the Father's part. He knowingly loved the Father's glory above self-preservation to give his life as a ransom for many. He embraced the suffering of the cross for the sake of his people. Jesus knew when Satan appears to him and says, I will make you a king today. Jesus knew he was already a king. But a king going on his way to the cross. In a similar way, each one of us here whose faith rests upon and receives all of Jesus Christ as he has offered to you in the gospel. In a similar way, if we are to follow after him, we have to come to life unto the cross also. In other words, we ourselves must relinquish control to the will of the Father. We must embrace difficulty and turbulence knowing that this is planned upon my dial by the Father's love of me. That as I look to my Lord and see that He loved the glory of God above all this world provides, instructing me therein that that is why I have even been created. May I follow after Him through faith that rests solely upon Him, relying upon His immeasurable grace that He will strengthen me in my pilgrim's journey to love not the world, neither the things that are contained therein. Finally, notice the last of our temptations. As we relinquish control, this aspect of control, as we watch our Lord entrust Himself, not to Himself, but unto the Father with whom He loves. So also, if we are to follow Him, we must do the same. Finally, notice the second satanic assault as it surrounds that third category when we spoke of physical provision, power, or a sense of control over outcomes, elimination of uncertainties, and then consider this third category of protection. Look at verse 9, as I'll read 9 through 11. And he took him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said him, again, this, this, this begging, this, this teasing out, this, this creation of a question mark, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, you see how Satan does it, as the Lord turns to him and says, it is written. He says, okay, all right, all right, all right, all right, fine. Throw yourself down. Remember, it is written. He will command his angels concerning you to guard you. And, and, and on their hands, they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot 
against a stone. Here we see the deadly nature of temptation at work yet again. The twisting of the Word of God. The creation of what is a doubt in the mind that goes much deeper than a set of circumstances. The exploitation of turbulence. The exploitation of difficulty to make you fundamentally doubt that God loves you. Remember, God would not want this for you. If you are His child, then why are you passing your time under a continual cross? If you belong to him, why do you pass your pilgrim's journey in the shadow of a cross? What about the gift of a crown? Because I am too inclined to attribute everything that's good to my own flesh. Because I readily esteem my own virtues above their due measure. I would rely on my stupid and empty confidence in the flesh so much so that I would be insolently proud against the God who loved me and gave himself up for me. I would stand in the place and say, my own powers are sufficient without his grace. I am a child. I am beloved. And the turbulence doesn't disprove it but it confirms it. Here Satan seeks to create doubt in the mind of our Lord regarding the Father's abiding presence and care. Throw yourself down, right? He's going to catch you. In other words, Satan challenges Jesus to demand a miracle in order to prove that God loves him. How many evangelicals and those that are in unbelief outside of the church. How many people seek to prove God's love or have God prove his love to them through existential encounters? If you are, then how many evangelicals say, I know that God loves me because he spoke to me directly? What about the Word of God that's contained in Holy Scripture? Yeah, that's fine, but He spoke directly to me. That's a more sure word. How can a subjective experience be a more sure word than what is contained in the text of Holy Scripture? God has spoken to all of His people. This we see in our Lord's response. Not the forcing of the hand of God in a miracle. If you love me, you will fill in the blank. But as we see in our Lord's response, the presence of God, His abiding presence to you, believer, the surety of His love is known and felt through the surety of his word. How do we see that in response? 
Jesus relies solely upon the word of God over and against an existential miracle. If you belong to him, he will do X, Y, and Z. Force his hand. Say to him, you better catch me before I fall. Rather, the Lord turns where? To the written testimony. Verse 12, Jesus answered him, it is said. We'll make him say it again in a new and fresh way. In a more exciting encounter, where everybody will see the windows blow open and the drapes are thrown back, a dove will swing in here. Say it in a new way. Maybe you can't hear. He already thus said it. And by faith, I rest upon it. It is said, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. The creature doesn't examine the creator. creature rests upon the creator for all that is necessary and provisions control stability and preservation this is the grateful response to he who brought you out of Egypt and brought you out of the house of slavery and bondage he has saved me he will keep me So the question again at the end is simply this. Will we, believers, turn to ourselves? Or as Luther says, in our own strength, confide. Or will we, as we see in our Lord, trust in God through faith, Believing what he has said. There is a more sure word provided, Peter says. The text of Holy Scripture. Let us pray. Father, we do thank you that it is said. 